Hello and welcome to the Currency Exchange, now like Markets FX Podcast. We will break down the major themes and events driving at currency markets in the weeks ahead. Today I am joined by Brian Dangerfield, our co-head of G10 FX Strategy, and Alvaro Rubanco, our head of ESG and EM Macro Strategy. There was no disguising what was the big event this week. It was US CPI, and the print itself did not disappoint, coming out weaker than expected on the headline. Um, and the dollar certainly reacted, uh, trading down um, just over half a percentage point in reaction. Brian, uh, let me get your take on what you think about that CPI and what you think it does mean for Fed expectations. Thanks, Emer. Uh, as you mentioned, yes, the CPI came in weaker than expected on the headline. And if you look at the core number, the overall core CPI number, that came in at a 0.4% gain month on month. And now that's a pretty healthy gain and something that the Fed might not take a lot of solace. Uh, it's still well above what would be the norm pre-pandemic to sure. But if you look through the details of the report, there were some encouraging signs of disinflation in some of the categories that we know that the Fed is extremely focused on. So specifically thinking about services prices, and in particular, services prices, excluding rent and OER. Now, if you look at some private sector um, measures of rent and OER and housing prices, there's some expectation that over the past couple of months, you've already seen some signs of slowing in these uh, sectors that should feed into the CPI. And so one of the things that Powell and the Fed have been looking at is proxies of inflation, including core CPI on the service side, excluding some of those housing measures because there's already some expectation that those could start to moderate. And we did see some moderation, some disinflation in those categories within the core CPI. And so while the core CPI as a whole came in in line with expectations on the lower side of a 0.4% month on month, which kind of matched the consensus, there was some important progress in the categories that we know the Fed is focused on. So remember, when the Fed is thinking about raising interest rates and tightening policy, they're doing so with the goal of trying to push down the inflation that is demand-driven, something they think that they can control. And services inflation is arguably much more subject to slowing from bed interest rate tightening than, say, goods prices. If you think about oil prices, for example, the change in oil prices is going to be much less influenced by what the Fed is doing relative to service prices and demand in the economy. So from the Fed perspective, I think it was very important that you saw some moderation here. And now one print is not a trend make. We've seen a couple of head fakes before where inflation and core inflation has shown some signs of deceleration, disinflation, only to reverse back higher. And so we know at least some of the hawkish voices at the Fed are probably going to continue to warn about that possibility that they don't want to give up the fight too early. But I do think that the, um, th that the trend in inflation, I think is also consistent with what we're seeing in some of the growth data as well, that because of the instance of banking stress that we saw over the past month, we've already been expecting some slowing of growth, some additional tightening coming from the credit channel due to higher uh, higher standards for credit, for example, or uh, more difficulty in accessing credit coming from the banking sector stress. And so taking all of that together, we think the longer term trajectory for the dollar and for the Fed is still that we are effectively at the end of the tightening cycle. Now, if you look at the market today as we record on Thursday morning, the market's still pricing a better than 50-50 chance that the Fed does hike at their May meeting, essentially thinking that this number alone is not enough to stop them necessarily from hiking at their next meeting. But beyond that, the market is now priced for effectively that being the final cycle 
and we certainly think you know we we lean towards there being no hike in May, and that this that the cycle for the Fed funds rate hikes has already ended. And so the positivity coming to the dollar from the aggressive Fed tightening cycle, which was the big story all the way through 2022, that certainly feels like it's fading. And we've already felt that uh, slowing of economic data, if that can start to materialize more clearly as we move away from uh, the early stages of the year, where we think weather and some turn of your seasonals may have been boosting some of the economic data, that combination we think hits dollar exceptionalism uh, and continues to point towards a lower dollar from here. We have seen in some currencies here, a dollar, for example, we've broken above some key psychological level at 110, for example. We think there could be further room to the upside in those currencies and downside in the dollar. It looks like all those pizza are really falling into play for that dollar trend trend you've been calling for. And the other central bank I need to ask you, right, is the Bank of Japan. So we had the overall press conference um, of the new Bank of Japan governor. Um, Tell us what were your thoughts about what he was saying to disappoint market expectations? Yes, he did. And so Governor Ueda comes into the Bank of Japan at a pretty critical moment uh, because there are some real questions about the long-term sustainability of yield curve control. Japan inflation uh, is higher, just like a lot of inflation globally has moved higher. Uh, The Shunto wing rounds in Japan came in, I think, a little bit stronger than expected. There's some questions over whether or not the yield curve control policy that Japan has in place, this ultra-aggressive, easy policy, is something that can be sustained from a financial market functionality perspective and whether it's appropriate from an inflation and growth perspective. And so uh, Kuroda, previous governor, uh, Bank of Japan Governor Kuroda, very strongly defended that policy, defended the need for that policy. And Ueda has an opportunity to potentially bring new thinking, maybe a new pragmatic style approach, weighing the costs and benefits of that Uh, of that policy. And so there were certainly some expectations that maybe a new governor brings a new perspective and maybe some big changes very early on in his tenure. But Ueda's press conference really seemed to stick to the Kuroda script. He effectively said that yield curve control policy and negative interest rates, both of which Japan currently have, are still appropriate for now. Um, And he also made a couple of important comments about not wanting to surprise the market and also wanting to uh, speak with important stakeholders within the Bank of Japan to discuss the yield curve control policy, the market functionality issues and whatnot before making any drastic changes. All of that combined seemed to really reduce the odds in the market that uh, the BOJ would make a big splash on policy at Ueda's first meeting. Now, if you think back to 10 years ago, when Kuroda first came in as governor of the Bank of Japan, he, in his very first meeting, made massive changes uh, to policy, sort of the the beginning of Abenomics uh, is effectively marked by that moment. And so if you look back at history, last time we had a new Bank of Japan governor, he wasted no time, made massive changes very quickly. Ueda seems to be uh, towing the line a little bit more clearly here. So we already didn't think that Bank of Japan policy was going to change uh, a lot at the April meeting, Ueda's first meeting. He had made comments similar to what he said on Monday in his nomination hearings um, a, a couple of months ago. So we think that this was already expected. It seemed like it was already a low probability that you'd get a big change in April. It seems now very unlikely, given the comments that we had just a few weeks before that meeting, that we're going to get a big change at that first meeting. But I think these questions are going to hang over the Bank of Japan uh, for the coming months. And I think that um, you know, there's certainly going to be questions about the, the, the merits and the uh, financial market functionality of yield curve control, whether it's effective. Uh, whether it's sustainable, those questions I think are going to 
for you to hang over the Bank of Japan. So I don't think this theme is one that's necessarily gone, but I do think that Ueda's comments really sort of torpedo the possibility of a big change coming at the April meeting, his first meeting as governor. Yeah, I do think kind of market expectations for that hawkish BOJ shift under a new governor really got ahead of themselves. Uh, so interesting to see UADA really push back. And Alvaro, I have to kind of bring you in on EF central banks and kind of their response that we saw to banking sector concerns in the US. And he spoke, spoke previously about how they've been very conservative. Is that still the case? Is that still what we're seeing from central banks and emerging markets? Yeah. Uh, hi, Imer. Hi, Brian. Yeah, it's been it's been super interesting, right? Because just over the last couple of weeks, the shift there's been a shift in the conversations with with clients uh, away from the concerns about the Fed, as as Brian went through, right? This inflation print definitely helps to bring those fears down, and then more about you know how will EM perform in a period of U.S. slowdown, global slowdown, and there's been a little bit of pushback against our bullish view of high carry, high beta currencies. But for me, what's been super supportive is the reaction that we're seeing for central banks. And we now have a few of them responding to both the higher uncertainties, the concern about credit crunch in the US, and pretty much all of them, right, are being more cautious. They're being very, very careful about how they frame the next step. And in some cases where we are very, very close to kind of the point where they could signal, at least signal a pause, they're doing the opposite. They're leaving the door open for more hikes. And this is across regions. We've seen, you know, countries like South Africa, uh, Chile, Hungary, the Philippines, all of them have been a little bit more uh, more conservative. And I think that that's, that's very, very important for uh, emerging markets at this point because the carry is is so high, right? Carry to volatility, nominal rates, real rates, however you measure, uh, we are at historically high levels. And if we anticipate that this is not going to last for much longer, then the Fed eventually will start easing and some of these countries will follow. I think that it's kind of an opportunity to still take advantage of that very high uh, carry. So as a result of that, we're still very comfortable. The levels in some cases seem a little bit stretched, right? We're breaking some uh, sort of resistant levels in some crosses, but we still think that a lot of the fundamentals, and in some cases, actually, the positioning is pretty healthy for, for emerging markets. So kind of the dollar dying trend is that kind of the trigger to go into you know, high tariff, but also local currency bonds. Like where do you think positioning is most attractive, where kind of investors under-allocated. Yeah, there's been a lot of questions on that. And the good thing is that we have pretty good data, right, from the local sources in terms of how foreigners are positioned in the local markets. And again, across the board, it is still a fraction in some cases of what it was pre-pandemic, right? So we've seen a little bit of a pickup over the last few months as kind of investors get more comfortable with global fixed income. I think obviously, you know, they need to be more comfortable about U.S. treasuries. And once that happened, they start buying these higher yields, uh, in, in some cases, more attractive uh, curves because the fundamentals, right, especially in the fiscal, have been very, very solid for, for these countries. So I think that we are in the process of that, right? 
We've seen some some inflows, but we think that the next three to six months are, are going to continue to see a lot of foreigners taking advantage and starting to really buy in size, uh, you know, some local duration. So, you know, some some longer dated maturity in the local curve. What is important, not for all countries, but for a bunch of countries, is that because the carry, right, the policy rate is so high, this only makes sense if you have exposure to the currencies. And that's why, you know, things like even Mexico at this point, even though, you know, we're close to 18, it's difficult to see, uh, just looking at the chart, that we're going to see another um, rally of the Mexican peso. I still think that, you know, these flows could help. Same thing for Brazil, same thing uh, in Indonesia, where we think that there's like this positive spiral. Now, it's not all always the case, right? I think in your region is where we're seeing a little bit more of the local noise, the local dynamics is still uh, playing back. So maybe, you know, I'll pass it back to you and, you know, maybe you can comment a little bit on those countries. Yeah, I seem to have the kind of problem countries in my region. Um, and I think it's interesting what you're saying about you know, the decision of whether or not investors cut if they do go into local currency bonds. Um, and, you know, I think both for Israel and South Africa, you know, their central banks really lagged the hiking cycle of other EM peers. And um, so effectively, you know, it's relatively cheap uh, to hedge that FX exposure. So I think you would do that. I think, you know, in South Africa, especially, we could definitely see investors go back in, especially to the long end of the local currency um, curve. But I think they would do that on an FX hedge ratio. And we just got word yesterday that they're increasing the amount of electricity rationing within the country. And they've had kind of problems with uh, widespread strikes, and they also kind of suffer from a dilapidated um, network of rail and ports. So there's a lot of kind of negative domestic stories, and obviously what that means for economic growth uh, in the country, which would really uh, prevent SAR from rallying. And I think in Israel's case, it's definitely kind of the political concerns have been delayed, but they have not been cancelled. And so it's still a wait and see position. Well, guys, that's probably about all we have time for uh, on today's podcast. You've kind of gone globally around uh, the global economies. Guys, thank you both for joining me. Uh, if you did like the podcast, do click like and make sure you subscribe so you get the latest episode first.